to the end of Easter at Pentecost in a couple of weeks. Yes, Easter's not over yet. It goes all the way to Pentecost, which is in two weeks. And we have spent the last three weeks learning what it means to live as a disciple after the resurrection of Jesus. You see, once we believed in Jesus on Easter, remember, don't stop believing. You sang it all the way home. It just kept going through your mind. It should never really get out of your mind. Never stop believing. And once and after Easter learned to live, then now it's about loving. How do we love and act as his disciples? What does it mean to be marked by a loving God? Sent by a loving God and empowered by a loving God. In other words, how is the love we show others the natural response to and the embodiment of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection? That's the big question for the next three weeks. Do you remember a time in your life when you were waiting for bad news? Or when something was about to end that you didn't want to end? Picture that moment in your head. I've had several of them many times. They, they are related to moving from church to church where you just don't want it to end. It's hard moments. It's hard to leave houses or our first home when we left it. It's hard to move from places and go different places, you know. Maybe it was going to different school. Maybe it was a job that you loved and it was just time to transition. Or maybe you were fired or just let go. Remember that time in your life when you didn't want something to end. And you didn't want to accept it. You didn't want to believe it. You didn't want to acknowledge it. This passage today from John 13 is that kind of thing. It's called, these series of things right here are called the farewell discourses. Where Jesus is saying goodbye to the disciples. Jesus is preparing the disciples for a life without his physically being around anymore. And more than offering comfort, Jesus is trying to reorient them back towards the mission. That it wasn't about him, it's about the mission. Not his physical presence with them. The community is still in a vulnerable state and it's developing life together. They're not fully focused on what they're supposed to do. And if the community doesn't learn to live a a love that will thrive despite its differences... He knows they will never be able to accomplish the mission that he has given them. That the message of God in the broader community will be affected. He knows that. He's got to get them back on track and not focused on him. And that's where we find ourselves in John 13, 31. If you want to follow along, pull up the YouVersion Bible app and pull into the event. There's a couple of nice little bonus things in there this week. But here's where the scripture goes. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. 
It's not an accident that today's scripture begins with the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot. He's the one who has gone out at the beginning. It is right after Judas has left. And now Jesus sees an immediate need to make the rest of the disciples clear about who he is and about what it means to be glorified. You see, when Judas betrays Jesus, it begins the whole journey for Jesus about being glorified. Now, we use that word all the time, and I'm sure that if I asked you, you'd tell me you know what it means. But if I actually asked you to define it, more than likely you don't know what it means, and you would pretend to tell me you did. So what does glorified mean just for those two of you who don't know what that means? Dictionary.com defines glorified as to be represented in such a way to appear more elevated or special. He continues, if God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. So if you know what glorified means, you better figure it out because he mentioned it five times. And then he says, little children, I am with you only a little longer. You see, in the moment following his betrayal... Jesus is in the process of becoming glorified already. It's already started to begin to elevate him, that he's going to become special, become the center of attention very quickly, representing something more than he already was. The veil is about to be pulled off. The transfiguration is about to come fully alive. The light and everything else that goes along with it which is astounding in itself, but then Jesus still has to reassure the disciples yet again without making them feel like they're being abandoned. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not going to be here, but you're not going to be abandoned. But the disciples have not yet fully understood the glorification of Jesus. They don't understand that it's linked to what must be done on the cross. They don't understand any of it and why he has to go to the cross for this to be done. You see, they have not fully understood that Jesus is beyond special. They don't fully get it that Jesus is beyond special. What glorification means to be glorified. That Jesus is the source of their strength in times of uncertainty. They don't get that. That Jesus is the source of their strength in times of uncertainty. And here's the thing, we often miss that too. That Jesus is the source of strength for us in our times of uncertainty. Amen? I want you to read that to make sure you actually hear it. Read that with me. Jesus is the source of our strength in times of uncertainty. And you can imagine the disciples in that moment when Jesus is talking to them about the end. I mean, think about it. Before he spoke these words that come next, they're getting lumps in their throat. They're trying to swallow down their fear because he won't be with them anymore. And he says, you will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. 
It's his friends hearing this. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Our journey is over in this world. It's been a lot of laughs, but it's done. We're done together. It's an intimate moment that begins the goodbye. And goodbyes are never easy, whether necessary or not. Goodbyes are hard. And he's talking to them. And he acknowledges the longing the disciples will feel after his departure. The beginning of a deep nostalgia of all they've experienced over the last three years. That's a long time to be together. Double that. We've been together six years. That's a long time to be together. You get to know people in a whole different way. Every moment, every more month, every, every year, it, it's different. You, almost, you begin to forget, even at three years, you begin to forget when you started. But you always remember when you end. Because that's how it is in life. And so they're, they're experiencing those three years together. And they long for the assurance that comes from the intimacy of physical presence. You know, that, that person you just wanted to see one last time. Or that situation where you just wanted to stay there and didn't have to, to move on. And, and you wanted to experience it. High school graduates experience that a lot. And college graduates where you, you spent four years somewhere. Or five years. Or six. Or seven. Or whatever it is. And then that moment in time is over. I remember leaving the Wesley Foundation after I graduated. That was my home. It was everybody I knew. And what it was like to go on to seminary where I knew almost hardly anybody in a huge city that I really didn't want to be in, Atlanta. And experiencing those moments. And those hours of journeying together, they were weary with exhaustion, but sometimes when you're exhausted with people that you love and you're, and you're with, it's some of the most greatest times together. You're doing something and you're exhausted, but you're like, you go, oh my gosh, what a, what a wonderful time this still was doing this thing together. Mission trips like that, right? Sharing inside jokes along the way. You know, your group has those jokes that nobody else knows and those experiences. And they would have had those too. We think somehow they didn't laugh. They didn't have fun. That somehow the disciples all sat around with Jesus in this mode of just teaching all the time. No, they laughed. They enjoyed life. They were, they were part of living together in this thing. Just doing life together. So he gives them instructions. A command to his best friends that he wants them to live out, which is why these next words are so powerful, not just because of the words they mean to us, because they were so powerful to them and have been throughout all the ages to the Christian community. When he says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. He is saying that to them. As his friends. And to all of us over all of the ages. And maybe one responsibility of discipleship is to always keep looking for the image of God in others. That's what he's saying to them. Keep looking for the image of God in everyone that you're around, especially each other. You would think the disciples would understand that, but they are very different people. Maybe we should always be looking for ways to show we've been marked by love. We've been marked by love. The disciples have been marked by love, by Jesus' love. 
He called them and he marked them for a mission. Marked by a loving God for ways to see the sacred in others that goes beyond just the spark of the divine. Instead of affirming their distinctiveness as children whom Jesus loved enough to give a new way of being with one another. The love made possible by Jesus' own presence as a human. Jesus' own suffering as God at the hands of the Jewish leaders in the Roman Empire. This is the kind of love that he's talking about, a love that goes beyond anything that they would know. And so it really begs the question, why is it so hard to live into this new commandment? Why is it so hard to love? I mean, think about it. It should be easy. If Jesus gives us the power to do it, if he told us we're supposed to do it, and it's one of the, the new commandment, he didn't say the new suggestion, he didn't say it was the next thing I want to tell you, he said this is a new commandment. And he already said before that all the other commandments boil down to what? Loving God and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. So all, that is the other commandment he said. So this is love each other too. So why is it we can't seem to live out this new commandment? I mean, on our more honest days, we admit there are some in our communities who are hard to love. Amen? If we're honest. And whether you're honest or not, Jesus knows your heart, so you're not hiding anything by not admitting that that's hard. I mean, whom do you find it hard to extend compassion towards? Poor people, because they look bad, they struggle, they don't dress right, don't live in the right neighborhoods, don't act the right way, don't have the right manners. Is it rich people because they think they have everything in the world and so they act with this whole sense that they're the only people that exist? They drive their fancy cars, live in their big houses, don't have any respect for anybody else who's lower than them? Certain ethnic groups, you know how the Jews are. They've always been that way. You can't trust the Jews. The blacks, we don't need those people. Heck, well, we have these rules about being able to drink from different water fountains and not be able to ride the buses together. And I was watching the thing about the Freedom Train, and the Freedom Train was going across the entire, this is 47, I think it was, or 46, was going across the entire country to show freedom. And there are parts of the states in the south who said when it comes here, not be segregated. The blacks will have to go to only one part of the train and the whites will go to the other part of the train on the freedom train. And Langston Hughes, the great poet Langston Hughes, African-American, wrote this poem about it that incited the country into saying, you know what, well, if that's the way it's going to be, then the freedom train's not going to go to the places where there isn't freedom. And it didn't. And this is in 46, 47. We know what happens in the 50s and the 60s. Is it that? Because if you think that we've eradicated that racism, it does, that's not true. And if this is easy. If you don't like, you know, people from Iraq, they just, you know, I think they're all, you know, I think they're all terrorists. And those seven countries we decide to ban people from. 
Well, they're all terrorists. They're all bad people. Arabs, I can't trust them. You see the thing I posted on Facebook where majority of our country thought that teaching Arabic numerals in the school system was actually, should be offensive and outlawed? You know what Arabic numerals, num, numerals are? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Or this zero, actually, but people didn't even know. They heard the word Arabic and they automatically assumed who somebody was and how they act. Or, you know, our, our new friends, Teraki Madness, are, give them some time to get their stuff together. They've been inundated by people, and so it's taken 30, 40 minutes to get dinner. I hope none of you, if you go there, will dishonor our church by in some way. Don't tell me from our church if you're going to be mean about stuff. Please do not go over there at all if you're going to be mean. So they're, they're Indian. I was talking to some folks in the business community, and they're like, well, you know, people tell us we shouldn't do deals with Indians because you can't trust them and because they're all, yeah. I was like, hmm, really? Is that what it is? Is it males or females? You know, you get something that's all males, all males are pigs, or all males just are jerks or whatever else, or all females are out to get something, or, you know, whatever it is. So you, you start lumping folks together, you have bad experiences. Is it teenagers? You know, those teenagers, they don't do anything. They're, they're good for nothing. They don't do anything besides think about themselves all the time and everything else. Right? That's how it works, right? So we blame the teenagers for everything? Is it conservatives? You know, I'm so sick of those conservatives. I'm sick of their, their policies and their deals and everything else. I'm sick of those liberals. I'm so tired of those liberals. If I could count every Facebook post I've got from a conservative or a liberal and put them all together and blow them up, I definitely would. They're exactly the same on both sides. There is no difference. So maybe it's that, that group politically... What group is it? What person is it? Who don't you trust and don't think should be present at the table? Is it gays and lesbians? Because, you know, I can't trust any of them, and that's just so weird. I can't figure it out. I don't know what to do with it. You know, so they're not allowed at the table anymore. I don't know. It could be anybody for you and for me. We all have our biases against love. We all have our place that we can't seem to overcome, that whether through experience or just generalities or stereotypes, we just live in it. I mean, imagine the one person in the Good Shepherd community, maybe, or your workplace or your school with whom you struggle, the person that you just can't seem to get it together with. Because there's at least one person in every community you're in that's like that for you could be the same for each one of you. It could be somebody different. What would it look like to give this person elbow room at the table of God? What would that look like? To not have to agree or to believe, but to have elbow room at the table of God. You know, elbow room, you know, where you sit at a table and you can't get your stupid elbows up because someone's like in your way. Or if you're left-handed especially, it's really hard to figure out how to eat. All the lefties are going to... All the lefties I go to lunch with, I'll have to figure out what side of the table they got to sit on so they can be able to eat. Bunch of lefties, what's for, you know, they're only like half, like 10% of the population. Who's a lefty in this room? Raise your hand if you're a lefty. Nisla, you're a lefty? Are you really? Oh, wow. Davis? Lefties? What's good about lefties? Oh, nice. Only lefties are in their right mind. 
You see, the closer we are to other people we disagree with, the more tense it gets. And, and so what we do is, is that, that complexity and how we relate to one another, that's why we try to maintain our distance. People we don't like, don't agree with, don't believe, we like to maintain our distance instead of really having to talk, of having to work through what it means to be together in dis- different beliefs. We might feel betrayed by one another. And there are yet others who would be the first to announce that they would never cause such harm to the work of God. That's not where their heart is. And Jesus saw this coming among his disciples. He knew they would not get along. He knew they were going to have trouble. And so he was trying to get them on board before things began to get a lot worse. And they're about to get a lot worse. And when you're under stress, what happens? You take it out on people the closest to you. And if they're not getting along anyways, it'll just make it worse. And even to us today as his disciples, he says the same thing. He knew we can love others without totally agreeing with them. That often love is worked out by agreeing to disagree. That we can offer love and care for people who are different from us and people we don't agree with. He knew we could do that. He had seen it. I saw this. It's so interesting that things pop up on Facebook that actually really speak to what the sermon's talking about. And I saw this one on Facebook last night. It says this, When you learn to sit at the table with your Judas, you'll then understand the love of Jesus Christ. When you can sit at the table with your Judas, then you'll understand the love of Jesus Christ. In the state of Maryland, there are many rivers that flow into the Atlantic and on the coastline and in lakes and rivers, there are geese and swans. And the geese and swans seem to be very indifferent to each other. And there's actually a rivalry between the two birds. Once or twice a year, it snows and the river Tredavon even freezes over. And one morning, Teresa was having breakfast near a big window where she had a perfect view of the river. And when she looked out of the window, she saw a large Canada goose with its feet frozen in the ice. Then to her amazement, she looked up to the sky and saw a line of beautiful swans that were, that were flying overhead. And the leader of the swans made a right turn and began to circle down. Then at once the entire circle of swans descended and they landed on the ice where the goose was. Teresa was astonished to see the swan surrounding the goose who's frozen to the ice. And with their long necks, they started picking at the ice in a circle around the goose. They kept this up for quite a while. The ice was not really thick. And with the hard pecking of the swans, a circle of ice broke around the goose's feet. Then the swans ascended and they flew in circles around the goose as if they were waiting to see the goose take flight. The goose stood up and couldn't move its frozen wings. And again, the swans descended and landed around the goose. With their powerful beaks, they began to scrape the goose's wings from top to bottom. They lifted the goose's wings in its body and to scrape and scratch the ice that was glued to its feathers. Finally, the goose put his wings out and flapped several times and the floor four swans they flew back to join the rest of the swans that were still circling above 
And Teresa was so overcome with emotion that she witnessed the gooses fly up with incredible speed and join the swans that were flying in the sky together behind the ones who had come to her rescue. True story as far as I know. You see it in the animal kingdom all the time. Predators help the prey sometimes. They gather together, the lion and the lamb. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, which is unconditional. So you must love one another. And then he closes with this. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. Which means if you do not have love for one another, you are not my disciples. It's the last thing he says to them. Beginning of the last. After Judas has left and betrayed him, this is what he says. Which you can infer then, which means what we already know, which is that Judas was not left out of that love even when he betrayed him. And he's making sure the disciples knew that before he left. Judas didn't die because of Jesus. Judas died because of Judas and his inability to forgive himself because Christ already forgave him when he let him dip into the bowl before he ever left. You see, this command to love can be so easily dismissed or not so context-specific. I mean, he's actually laid it out. You are to love one another as I have loved you. Do you see any interpretation needed there? Do we need to get the dictionary out to be able to figure out what that means? Do we need the scholars to come and tell us about this Bible passage to be able to figure out what that sentence means? No. Jesus needed this small band of brothers from everywhere and every viewpoint that when the things got bad and they were under stress, he was saying, if you cannot love your own brothers and sisters, how can you even love your enemies? If you guys can't get along, if you guys can't work together, if you can't love one another in your differences, how can you possibly love your enemies? It's a message for the church and for Good Shepherd and for us individually. Because if we can't even love the ones that we share space with, that we worship with, that we serve with, then how can we possibly ever go to the real level he calls us to do, which is love our enemies. See, they had to, to show they were marked by a loving God, no matter their beliefs. That was the one thing they had in common, that they were marked by a loving God that joined them together. And so the question I have that kind of closes us off is, how have you seen others at Good Shepherd marked by God? Where have you seen others in the Good Shepherd community who love this way, who are marked by God in this way? How do you feel you've been marked by God? How does it show? How do you live? 
How do you show love in your community, in this community? How do you show your love? Disapproval? Talking about somebody behind their back? How do you show your love to people that even you don't agree with? The lefties versus the righties. How do you show that? How are we all marked by God? And so it's because we are marked by love that we are brought to the same table. We don't have a table for each one of us or a table for one group or another. Can you imagine if we sort that out? We'll sort it by color, ethnicity, by your political views. We'll sort it by your sexuality. We're going to sort it by male and female. We're going to sort it by lefties and righties. Yeah, you're out. That's it. We don't do that. This table is for everyone. We don't decide who comes to this table. I'm not the keeper of this table. Jesus is. That's not our job. And it's because we are marked by love that we leave this table as well. We're able to come to it and we're able to leave it and we're able to share that love. So I want you to do to close this off is, is I want you to turn to the person on your right. I want you to give that person a blessing by saying you are marked by love. If there's somebody on, on your right, then turn back to the left and give them a second blessing. But I want you to do it in a second. I want you to turn to that person on your right. And I want you to say, you are marked by love. In three, two, one. Go for it. Tell the person on the other side of you too. Why not? Tell the person on the other side of you too. And I want you to put your hand up like this. I want you, if you're a lefty, like this. <laughs> yes, that's right, Cassie. Whichever is your dominant writing hand, put a finger up. The other hand, put a palm up, whichever it is. And I want you to draw a cross on the inside of your palm. And say to yourself, I am marked by love. So here we go. I am marked by love. We are marked by love no matter what. They will know we are Christians by our love not by our disagreement not by our righteousness not by our our right thinking or by our prayer or our scripture reading they will know we are christians by our love that was the hallmark at the beginning of the movement even when they were being persecuted they still reached out to their captors with love even when they're dying in the arenas they still reached out to the Roman Empire with love. And it was their love that brought the Roman Empire down, that transformed the way things work. It was not them gathering together to fight, to go up against that. that none of that happened. It was over time, love just wore down hate and prejudice. It's not overnight. It's not for us either. But it's up to us, the people who are marked by love, to be the ones to do that. We've all been marked by a loving God. Amen.
our loving God, he sat in that upper room and he talked to them and once again was trying to get them to understand what he was saying. He gave thanks to his Father in heaven, the creator of the fruit, the creator of the vine, creator of the bread, the manna. He broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time that you take it and receive it. When the supper was over at the same time, remember this is the same supper in which Jesus left. I don't know if Judas left at the fourth cup or the third cup or where he left. But if he left at the fourth cup, then what he did was he dipped into the fourth cup of redemption but never really partake of it. Never understood it. But Jesus said his sacrifice, his blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins, the words of institution that we've used for thousands of years, would indicate the kind of death he was going to do. He was going to receive a death of sacrifice. He is the one who said in John as well, there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And by doing this, he said to all of us, you are my friends. And that's why the new commandment speaks even more to us. Because we are Jesus' friends. So I invite you to this table this morning. It's not I or the United Methodist Church that invites you. It is Christ himself. who invites you to partake, to find means of grace through these elements, the simple bread, the simple juice that become for us the remembrance, the living embodiment of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. I invite those who are coming forward to serve, to come forward to serve as we pray over these elements. Gracious God, may we understand and fully know the power of your love through what we receive today. Pour your spirit upon this bread and this juice. Make them be for us the body and blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. May we be his example, empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, people of God said together, Amen. You may come forward as they put themselves into their places. The body of Christ broken and given to you in love. The body of Christ broken and given to you in love. The body of Christ broken and given to you in love. The body of Christ broken.
So I have a last page of the sermon that's somewhere else floating out there. Um, you don't have it either, so that's not good. 1965. There's a song that was written and came out. Burt Bacharach. Mm, yeah, okay. Raindrops are falling on my hand, that kind of stuff. All right, 1965, so writing this song with, and I forgot the guy's name now, so I apologize for that, but the guy who wrote the lyrics, Hal somebody, can't think of it, Hal Davis, David, David, Hal David, thank you, Hal David wrote these lyrics, and so he was writing to this song, and the interesting part about this song is, this is much better when I had it written down, but he's writing this song is, he was writing this song to God, in case you didn't know that. And so the song he was writing was trying to figure out the, uh, Burt Bacharach said it was the hardest word uh, music he's ever written. And how David wrote this lyric and about, talking about um, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And he lays out that whole piece of it and he's doing all of it and they're trying to figure these verses out. And they can't figure out the verses. It's like, well, how is it better than an airplane? Is it better than a jet? Is it better than whatever? And so the verse, you know, if you know the verse it talks about is we don't need any more mountains to climb, right? We don't need any more of these things because we already have enough of those things. And so he's really fighting hard. He's talking to God and and he's saying, well, what do I say to God that we need more of that we don't already have? So it's 65. It's the middle of the Vietnam War. People are split, divided, fighting it out in the streets. And so he comes up with this whole piece of this. And they're surprised because they figure with this much division in in the country, there's no way it's going to be a big hit. And yet it is. Most of us probably know this song in this room from one generation to a generation. It's just a boss baby just recently. They used it at the end of boss baby of all things. And uh, so we're going to sing this song. We're going to, we're going to do this and do this together and uh, try this out. Not the verses. I don't want you to go on the verses, but just the refrain you know. What? Amen. Go in God's love.